I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Kat Rosenfield is a culture writer, a columnist for Unheard, the co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast, and the author of five novels. Her latest is called You Must Remember This, a Knives Out style whodunit, and it's out in paperback right now. Kat, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm glad that we're both glad that you're here. Now, I've been a fan of your work for years, not to fanboy too much, but writers, like all artists, have themes that animate them, I think, and they return to them over and over again. So, for example, Steven Spielberg, it's Absent Fathers. For Wes Anderson, it's Absent Fathers. Actually, I was doing research. A surprising amount of male artists make art about absent fathers. One of my lifelong obsessions and a major reason for starting this podcast is that I'm fascinated with our shared and divergent conceptions of identity, how we're bad at talking about this topic in complex and empathetic ways. Looking through a selection of your writing from some of your essays for Unheard, including The Curse of the Metrosexual to Yayoi Kuzama Doesn't Need a Race Reckoning and The Lies of Trauma Merchants to your recent column in the Washington Post, You Shouldn't Be Fired for Being a Jerk. It feels to me like what gets you going is hypocrisy, the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. How on base am I? I think pretty close. I would say it's more hypocrisy in combination with sanctimony, because I think, you know, many people are not entirely consistent. There's one of my favorite lines from Downton Abbey, the early years, this one with the Dowager Countess says, I'm a woman, I can be as contrary as I please. And I always liked that. You know, I always liked the idea of embracing one's inherent self contradictions and the fact that we are inconsistent creatures. But it's a person who is insistently trying to scold and shame other people and tell them how to live, who doesn't practice what they preach, doesn't lead by example. I don't know. That really does cheese my cracker. To sum it up in the words of a man who should spend much less time on X and much more time making rockets, quote, and what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. That's Elon Musk. Yeah. I mean, insightful for him. He has his moments. <laughs> Yes, he has occasional moments of clarity these days between far too much tweeting. Okay, so let's talk about this WAPO article. I just spoke with Greg Lukianoff two weeks ago, his second appearance on the pod, and his episode immediately precedes yours because in many ways, you kind of talk about the same thing, which is we like things we like and we don't like things we don't like. We support people saying things we like and we don't support people saying things we don't like. In your recent column, you write, quote, the list of things I don't think people should be fired for is virtually endless. That includes provocative food opinions, using your thumb and forefinger to make the OK sign, retweeting an off-color joke, getting into an altercation with a stranger at the dog park, and various and sundry interpersonal conflicts that fall into the general category of being a jerk. And yet, for all these things and more, many people have suffered serious professional consequences in recent years, often at the behest of the same people now lamenting that they can't post Hamas paraglider memes or tear down posters of kidnapped Israeli children without someone reporting them to human resources. Don't worry, I don't think the paraglider meme poster should be fired either, end quote. So to start, <laughs> for anyone who may be blissfully unaware of what's going on, what's going on? Oh, God, I'm so intimidated by the fact that I'm going on after Greg Lukianoff. I mean, <laughs> this is like, <laughs> those are big shoes to fill. Okay, so what is going on? Well, we're in a moment where 
we're talking about specifically the Israel discourse, right? That's the question. What I'd love to talk about with you is how what is happening around the Israel-Palestine discourse is revealing the kind of sanctimonious hypocrisy which animates you, which I think animates a lot of us, small L liberals, I guess you could say, if we're going to categorize, which happens on the left and the right, right? Where I've been saying this privately with friends for years. Right now, freedom of speech seems to be a quote-unquote right-wing thing. But let's be honest, if the right-wing were culturally ascendant, free speech would be a left-wing thing. So it just seems to be this back and forth where you're all for freedom of speech when it's saying things you agree with. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's sort of my issue with it and has been for a long time is that people are very, they talk a big game about wanting freedom of speech. And then it turns out that actually what they really wanted was just the power to decide who gets to say what. They're just trying to get their grubby hands on the censor's pen. And once they have it in hand, they're like, oh, no, actually, now that I have this power, I don't want to not abuse it. I want to control what other people say. I want to shut down the ideas that I find distasteful. And there is definitely this ping-ponging effect, as you've described. When the right is in control of the discourse or the culture, although it's difficult to remember the last time that was true, but it was when I was growing up, then the left was big on freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and big on the idea that they weren't compelling anybody to adopt the ideas they were espousing. They just wanted the freedom to sort of live as they pleased and to say what they wanted to say. And then as I think the left became culturally ascendant and especially became sort of in control of power in all of the places where culture is created, so in academia, in the media, in Hollywood, in publishing, and on and on, Suddenly, there was no problem if you were a left-leaning person, if you were a liberal. There was no problem with saying what you wanted to say. But they realized that it was easier than ever before to quash right-wing speech. And so all of a sudden, free speech became a right-wing value. One thing I want to dig into with you, which I didn't quite have the chance to dig into as much as I would have liked with Greg... Well, let me quote another piece from your Washington Post article. Quote, the truth is people have always held an incredible variety of stupid opinions. They've always been foolish or biased or bigoted or believers in wild conspiracy theories, but they have also always been perfectly capable and deserving of remaining employed and contributing productively to society, irrespective of the views they hold, end quote. And there's a tension around this topic that I'm unable to resolve within myself. What I hate about 95% of cancellation attempts is that most fall into one of two categories. I would label them as either power plays or playground pettiness. So either I'm going to get this person fired over something they said that I've either said myself or heard other people say, but I just want their job or their title, or I want to increase my own standing by canceling them. I'll grow more powerful by taking down someone more powerful than me, or I hate this person, or I'm jealous of this person, or I'm obsessed with this person, and I'm going to destroy them. But, and this is a big but for me, if a company or a university or a book club doesn't want to associate with someone anymore because of an opinion they hold or a thing they've said or done, isn't that fine? Ostensibly, yeah. It's just... The way that it often plays out, and this is a common point of contention within the whole cancel culture debate, it's freedom of association, right? We all have freedom of association. You know, if somebody's in your house being a dick, you should be able to show them the door. But 
the way this plays out in actuality is often it's not that somebody's individually making an assessment that they've been offended by somebody else's speech, whether it's an employer-employee relationship or a friendship or what have you. It's that a mob has gone after somebody who's said something often that is completely within the realm of mainstream opinion, but that has, for whatever reason, either triggered a group of what I call the shriekingest people on Twitter who managed to make a lot of noise disproportionate to how many of them there actually are. And they managed to catch the attention of an employer who, not understanding how online dynamics work, panics and is like, oh, God, I have to get rid of this person who's attracted all of this controversy and negative attention because it's going to end up brushing off on my business and that's going to be bad. So what you end up with is these mob dynamics dictating who remains employed, who remains a person insofar as they're allowed to remain within mainstream society, and who gets turned into a pariah. So it's difficult to translate what we all understand as the reasonable rules of engagement. Yeah, if you come into my house and you smash my furniture and call me names, then I'm going to ask you to please leave. But even if you did this in somebody else's house, and then a mob is whipped up against you, and it's like, we're going to remove you completely from society so that you have to go into a cave and die alone. You're going to be jobless. You're going to be friendless. You're going to be an unperson for the rest of your life. It becomes very quickly extremely disproportionate to even very egregious social offenses. And the other thing is that there's no path back, which is something that I've been kind of obsessed with ever since we first started doing this to people. You take someone like Louis C.K., who granted did some pretty weird stuff. You can debate whether or not it was consensual, whether or not it was reasonable for him to think he had consent. But he went away as he was sort of asked slash forced to do. But then he's a relatively young guy. He was always going to come back. And once he attempted to re-enter the sphere in which he was previously employed, it's sort of the only thing that he's really good at doing. There was this sort of outcry, like, no, not like this, not yet. And I wondered at the time, and I still do, what are these people supposed to do post-cancellation? Because it's not as though they actually die. It's not as though they disappear. They're still around. And one of the things that I mentioned in this piece that I think is the more pragmatic angle on this argument is that unless you want your tax dollars to go to a fund for keeping canceled people comfortable and alive for the rest of their lives without inflicting them as like employees or, you know, compatriots or friends on the wider world, then you're going to have to allow them to reenter society. Yes, I agree with you, but I'll play devil's advocate here. Go for it. Louis C.K. played at Madison Square Garden this January. So how canceled is he? Okay, this is a great example. You can be canceled and then you can come back. I mean, the idea that canceled means we never hear from you again, that canceled means you're dead. I'm going to use a not perfect analogy because it's extreme. But if you try to kill somebody and you only succeed in maiming them and then they eventually go through like a lot of rehab and physical therapy and surgeries and they manage to regain some semblance of the life they had before, but after enormous personal cost, after years laboring to get back to where they once were, did they really suffer? Obviously, you would say that they suffered. But the way we talk about cancellation is as though the damage you inflict on somebody doesn't count or isn't real 
if they manage to rebuild even the tiniest semblance of a life after you've tried, you the hypothetical you, I know you have not personally done this, but after you've tried to destroy them. Does that make sense? It does. And to yes and you with the uh, trying to stab you to death metaphor, one could say that celebrities are walking around with a kind of body armor that makes them a little more resistant to the attempted assassination that the average person doesn't have. Someone like Louis C.K., who was already famous and beloved by hundreds of thousands of people, if not more worldwide, who were and then remain fans of his work even post-cancellation attempt, he's going to be able to rebound from that. Even if he performed at Madison Square Garden, you know, he's never going to be on mainstream television again. He's never going to have a movie release wide in theaters. He's never going to be on a late night talk show. There are whole aspects of the life that he once lived that are probably permanently gone, but he's able to rebound in a way that if just someone is targeted on Twitter who has no fame, and then every time you Google that person, when you're looking to hire them for a new job, they're always going to be associated with the worst moment in their life. And they don't have that body armor that someone like a Louis CK did. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I mean, the thing is, we know about what happened with Louis CK because he was already famous. There are a million stories like this that we never hear about or we hear about them and we forget them instantly because the nature of the culture that we've created is that as soon as somebody's destroyed, everyone moves on to the next target. I mean, if I said the name Emma Sarley to you, would you have any idea who that was? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is a great point. This is a young woman who had the misfortune to get into an altercation at a dog park in Brooklyn with a guy named Frederick T. Joseph, who had a penchant for basically trying to destroy the lives of people who affronted him in some way. And this is a man who's very easily affronted. He goes out the door and he finds something every day that causes offense to him. And he filmed this woman. He, he didn't actually film her doing anything offensive, but he said that she had said something racist to him before the camera started rolling. And on the strength of this alone, this poor woman who was like, I don't know, in her early 20s, lost her job. Her employer was tagged as soon as they figured out because people went on a hunt to figure out who she was. Once she was identified, everyone started tagging her employer and he immediately got online and was like, yeah, she's fired. Forever having done nothing but had the misfortune to encounter the world's angriest person who had time on their hands at a moment when tensions were running high surrounding these types of interactions. This was a flash in the pan as these things go. And I, I'm bringing it up because it's one of these things that like, unless you happen to have an ear to the ground, which is another way of saying like be obsessively online at exactly the right moment when all this stuff was going down or it happened to be something that interests you or that you wrote about, you would never have known who Emma Sarley was and you would have no idea what happened to her. I don't actually know what happened to her. I hope she's okay. I think one of the things that really rubs me the wrong way, one of the many things about our current moment is that interpersonal squabbles that take place between either friends, acquaintances, or strangers at a park are getting covered in the Washington Post or the New York Times. I've seen essays, you probably know the one I'm talking about, where like a woman dresses up in, I would say, not exactly the most tasteful Halloween costume 
like several years ago. Mm-hmm. I have a story about this. Yeah. But continue. Right. And I can't even remember what exactly she dressed up as, but it had a racial element and it wasn't like, it wasn't the, I mean, it was like she was trying to be meta and she was trying to make a meta commentary thing about, I can't even remember what it was, but like I saw it and I was like, okay, edgy. I don't know. It wasn't some alt-right thing. She was trying to make the kind of meta commentary on a racial issue that South Park would do, but she didn't pull it off. And long story short, some people at the party were uncomfortable with it. And then somehow, yada, 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 it ends up getting covered. I want to say Washington Post. I can't even remember which. That's correct. Three years later. Three years later, every interpersonal squabble seems to become a commentary on who we are as a nation. Like, we'll take this person here and this person here, and this person is a moral avatar for everyone on this end, and this person's a moral avatar for everyone on this end, whether the ends are political, racial, religious, whatever they are. And then that event becomes indicative of our entire country. You notice that? Yeah. And the person at the center of it ends up scapegoated for all of the crimes that anybody who looks like them or thinks like them or thinks like we think they think have ever done in the history of all time. Yes. So funny thing about that. I originally had a line in my Washington Post essay about wearing an edgy Halloween costume to a party being one of the things I did not think people should be fired for. And for some reason, that line was cut. (laughs) Perhaps because your column was written in the Washington Post. Might be. But it's funny since, you know, when we first started talking, you mentioned the thing about hypocrisy. And I thought it was very funny that the Post approached me to write about this issue from this perspective when they themselves as a paper, as an institution, had been at the leading edge of exactly the dynamic they were now paying me to decry. Right. I'm getting the wording a little wrong, but there's this like meme, you're probably familiar with it, that mainstream media is always three years behind where everyone else is. They'll be like, oh, actually, the coronavirus may have come from a lab after all. And then people are like, well, we were talking about the potential of that three years ago, and you told us we were all crazy. Or the Harper's letter, which you co-signed yourself, where it's like, hey, this is a problem. Freedom of speech is under attack and people are getting canceled and this is not good for a robust liberal, small L liberal society. And everyone's like, you're full of crap. You're all right wing. You're alarmist. This isn't happening. And then three years later, oh, actually, this is happening and it's bad and we should do something about it. Right, right. We've been at this party for three years and suddenly everybody is showing up asking us where we've been. It's like, this is our party. We started this party. I'm sorry. This is one of these things that actually makes me very angry is being accused of hypocrisy myself when I and other people people even more so who signed the Harper's letter. A lot of the folks who signed that are are people who really do have an extremely principled commitment to freedom of speech and freedom of expression, not just in terms of First Amendment stuff, but culturally. And a lot of people, you know, myself included, have defended those principles at cost. You know, it's not been an insignificant thing in my life to defend unpopular speech. And yet, for the past three years, every single time somebody has been under fire on the left for saying something that some right winger found offensive or whatever, there will always be somebody who gets online and says, if even one of the Harper's Letter co-signers has spoken out about this, I'll eat my hat or something like that. And invariably, pretty much all of the Harper's Letter signers who were aware of it have already said something about how it's bad. 
But it's just such a strange, and I guess it's probably a bit of projection going on. People are just uncomfortable. Oh, for sure. But yeah, I don't get mad online very often, but that makes me mad. It does. It is 100% projection because the people saying that, oh, where are the Harper's Letter people now? One, they don't care if anyone who signed on the Harper's Letter actually does agree with them that also this other thing is bad. And two, and I think this is very human, we project our own internal selves onto others because we only can ever truly know our own mind. And so we think that, oh, everyone must think and act the way that I think and act. I mean, it's a very self-centered way to live, but I mean, I think we're all guilty of it at some point or another. And so these people think, well, I'm tribal and I'm fine with it and I want to root for my side and I want the other side to get punished. So surely underneath all this pomp and circumstance and these highfalutin values they purport to have, I know that deep down they're just like me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I would describe that if it's a failure of imagination or something more sinister, but I do find it frustrating. I mean, the best example of playground pettiness that comes to mind for me and there have been many examples, is from three years ago. And I know you're going to know this story within the first four words that I'm about to say. I imagine if cancellation stories were like a topic on Jeopardy, you would probably just run the gamut on them. 100%, yes. (laughs) Dog park Karen for 400, Alex. (laughs) A 15-year-old white girl flippantly said the non-hard R N-word Oh, canceled cheerleader for 800. Yes. Okay. (laughs) On a video she sent to a friend on Snapchat while announcing that she got her driver's license. The exact quote, I'm not going to say the whole quote, but literally she just said, I can drive and words. Now, would I recommend someone saying this? No. Would I recommend them saying it and recording it and sharing it with a friend on Snapchat? I would say double no to that. But the friend she sent it to then sent it to more friends, and then eventually the video made its way around the whole school, as these videos are wont to do. And a fellow student at the school, who was biracial with a black mom, saw the video as it was shared around and complained to the school about it. And I think that's totally appropriate if he wants to do that. The school didn't do anything. So here's where it gets, let's just say, here's where it gets weird. So he held on to the video for three years. In his words, quote, I wanted to get her where she would understand the severity of that word, end quote. So after this girl graduates from high school and gets accepted into what she calls her dream college, it's immediately following the death of George Floyd. And this other student posts the three-year-old video on his social media. And then the girl's offer from the university is rescinded. And that's it. Oh, God, I hate that I know more about this. Can I add a couple of details that I think are salient here? Yes, absolutely. Although I do want to just include one final quote from this boy that he said to the New York Times, quote, If I never posted that video, nothing would have ever happened. And because the internet never forgets, the clip will always be available to watch. I'm going to remind myself, you started something. You taught someone a lesson, end quote. And so I think for me, and I definitely want to hear these additional details, three things can be true at once. People should not use racial slurs. Children are idiots who say stupid things all the time because they're immature and they don't have enough life behind them to understand the weight of their words and actions. And sitting on something like that for three years, waiting for your perfect moment to ruin a life is borderline sociopathic. Yes. And yes, but please (laughs) add more details. So, okay. I hate that. I remember this as well as I do. What have I forgotten so that I could (laughs) add this additional context to this story? 
the first thing is that actually she at the time that she made the video or at the time that it began to circulate, which I think was actually a year after she originally made it. She did apologize to everybody. Oh, right. She came out and said like she was wrong and she didn't. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. That's thing one. Thing two is that it wasn't just the murder of George Floyd that sparked the release of the video. It was that the girl in question posted something on her Instagram about how she was horrified by a post in support of Black Lives Matter. And I thought that was fascinating. So he decided to post the video of her saying the N-word in response to her having clearly demonstrated that she'd grown and come to a very different understanding of this issue, clearly. And so it was a this you moment where here's a person who seems like they actually have evolved past who they were at the age of 15. And here's another guy coming along to say, I won't let you do that. Right. So there's two things there. One, I think a big part of it is that we want to crystallize someone in one of their worst moments and then forbid them from ever being able to grow past it. I mean, hypothetically, you could have someone who works at soup kitchens, who tutors children of color on the weekend in their free time. Like you could paint as close as you can get to a perfect human being who, because they are imperfect as we all are, they say something or do something either intentionally or unintentionally. And then that becomes everything they are forever. Because as this kid said, you know, the internet never forgets, which is just like a very disturbing thing to say aloud proudly for all to hear. But if I'm going to steel man this, I do know how that feels right now. The thing that makes it a little different is I don't know if this girl and actually I don't think this girl actually ever had any personal interactions with this boy. For me, as someone who was bullied a lot as a kid, I was kind of a nerd before being a nerd was cool in the 90s. And a lot of kids, a lot of boys mistreated me and they picked on me at school. And it took me a long time to forgive them, but more importantly, recognize that as men, they were not the boys they once were. And I did resent them for their growth. I felt they hadn't earned it because they never apologized. So it's like I see them 15 years later and one, they don't apologize to me, but two, I see that they've become better people, but I'm still upset at the thing they did to me 15 years prior because what they did to me really hurt. Now, maybe I would feel a little different had they apologized to me. I don't know, but I do understand the very human thing that makes us crystallize the moment when that person was awful. And until we get closure, we don't really want to move past it ourselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the the high school bully who grows up to be a decent person or at least not as horrible as they once were. There is I, I enjoy telling this story because I just think it's very funny. I was bullied in high school as well. There was a girl who wrote on the wall of the locker room that I I don't want to say something completely disgusting on your podcast. So I, that I had performed a sexual act with my dog. Oh, OK. OK. And 10 years later... I got a Facebook friend request from this same girl. And I looked at this friend request and I thought, it's been a really long time since this now woman and, you know, and mother of three wrote on the wall of a public restroom that I had done a sex act with my dog. But it has not been long enough. (laughs) And so I declined her friend request. But that was where it ended. 
And I think the thing that's instructive about having had an experience like this, as you and I both have, is that what somebody has done to you and how you choose to view them on an interpersonal level is one thing. But when you try to extrapolate that dynamic out into a cultural moray, you try to organize human behavior en masse around that idea that we all need to react to people as though like this bully is every bully. You know, I'm seeing somebody do a bad thing and it reminds me of the bad things that have happened to me in my life. And so this person is now an avatar for the person who did a bad thing to me who was never punished, but I can punish this other person because there's a video of them on the internet being a jerk. I'll say this. It's understandable. It's also completely unsustainable. You can't make that the norm or we'll just tear each other to shreds. Kind of adjacent, but I think connected to this topic. There was something that you said about former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in discussion with Megan Dom. You said, quote, he's just clearly a very corrupt individual. And yet people wanted him so badly to be our COVID hero in New York, I think partly because it suggested that by comparison, we were taking COVID seriously, unlike all those bad folks down in the South who weren't masking and who weren't locking down. People were very unwilling to scrutinize him or to criticize him in a way that he really, very frankly, deserved. And once people have been letting that stuff slide, they couldn't just retroactively go back and say, actually, this was very bad. You basically killed 15,000 grandparents and then you tried to cover it up and we want you out, end quote. And this is such an astute observation about how we, on both sides of this aisle, we've made for ourselves, to use a poker term, get pot committed to defending bad behavior from people we'd otherwise never have anything to do with. So we seem to love designating people, flawed, imperfect, seemingly more often than not unscrupulous individuals, as moral avatars for our quote-unquote side. And then we wield them as weapons against the other side's respective avatars. Like, my avatar, Fauci, is better than your avatar, Trump, and here's why, right? They become like these big moral effigies that we just wave around as representative of our own goodness and they become symbolic of something larger than themselves, creatures of myth who happen to actually still be living among us. But no one can ever live up to that standard, right? Because we're just human beings. We also tend to choose people who won't live up to it. And then we box ourselves in by proclaiming them our standard bearer in this war we've decided we've committed to. So when it turns out that our standard bearer has been like wantonly killing grandma, we're already in too deep to object. And I think if we could just get ourselves out of this paradigm where we give someone sainthood and then when they do something bad, we're too committed to the idea of them being perfect that we can't actually condemn them. And this happens right, left, everywhere. And I don't know how we get out of it. Do you have any ideas? It's so striking. It sounds like an absolutely cursed game of Dungeons and Dragons, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because... Obviously, the one way that we do get ourselves out of it is by recasting the hero who has become too obviously problematic as some other type of villainous archetype. And this happened with Cuomo, where nobody was going to go after him for having been actually really bad on COVID, for having instituted harmful policies that damaged lives, policies that resulted in deaths. Nobody could go after him for that. And so instead, when we got the opportunity to meet to him, it was like, yes, that. He's see, he's a sexual deviant. He's a predator. And I'm not saying that Cuomo was not guilty of what he allegedly did. He sounds in many ways he you know, was behaving very inappropriately at work. 
But I do also think there was an element of opportunism in there where people wanted him gone and they needed a reason to do it. They couldn't just pivot and say, actually, we've changed our minds. We've come to our senses and we realize that you did bad things in your capacity as the person who was in charge of COVID response in New York State. Instead, they had to cast him as a different kind of villain and then oust him for being a pervert. And it was very effective. Right. Do you think that the way that Cuomo was taken down was in part, I mean, obviously, he seems to have done sexually inappropriate things on the job, which should be disqualifying in and of itself. But it almost feels like, though, that because his supporters claimed him a hero in one specific realm, when it turns out he wasn't the hero they thought he was in that one specific realm that they made him their champion in, they couldn't then take him down there. So having another way to do it kind of allowed them to take him down for one of the things that he probably should have been taken down for, like political incompetence in a time of a crisis. But thank goodness for them that this other horrible thing also came along that they were able to use to take him down, because if they had taken him down for the covid thing, like, hey, you were lying and sending grandparents to their deaths because of your irresponsible policies. We'd have to admit that all the T-shirts we got made with your face on it next to Fauci's, we're going to have to donate them or burn them. I wish he had never done those, the sexual harassing and the sexual abuse at work. I wish that had never happened. But it almost seems like when this came along, for many of his supporters, I imagine there must have been some element of relief of like, okay, we can finally get rid of him because we couldn't have done this on this other thing because we had built him up too much. Yeah, that's a much more eloquent way of saying what I was trying to express about a minute ago. A lot of people, I think, at that moment, quietly put their Cuomo sexual t-shirts out (laughs) in the bin for goodwill. (sighs) What a weird moment. And I think that this speaks to something that I've started to get a little bit obsessed with. And so I'm trying to resist the urge to develop it into a theory of everything that, like, you know, explains every single thing that annoys me in the culture. Yes, I had this quote pulled up from Twitter. This is what happens when everything is fandom. These kids aren't actually evil idiots. They're just living in a world where this is the only mode for engaging with anything. So they've picked a team and they're rooting for it. They're the Bayhive, but for politics. Yes, but this is the thing we do now, even with our politicians. And I think that the new crop of politicians that we have now, and it's not just Donald Trump, although he is clearly the most obvious example of this, but people like AOC and the rest of the squad We have a very different dynamic going with our politicians than I think we once did. And it's one very much fueled by Internet fandom and the dynamics and the mores that come out of that, where people become these kind of cult figures and everything is teams and it doesn't allow for nuance. And I think more importantly, it doesn't allow for the truth to be like a guiding force in anything that we're doing. Because once you've decided that you're rooting for a team and you're rooting for a team because that's your team and you're rooting for it, it doesn't really matter what's actually happening or what people are actually doing because you're just entrenched in this not unpleasant group dynamic. It's not dissimilar to a mob dynamic. You know, the same kind of sentiment that leads a bunch of people on the evening that their team wins the hockey championship or whatever to go out in the streets and collectively flip over a cop car. We've injected that into politics, and I don't think it's great. So when you talk about how do we get away from 
sort of the mess that we've currently gotten ourselves into. I think that abandoning fandom as the mode for everything would probably be a good start. Is there even a way to do that? Oh, it's never going to (laughs) happen. I want to actually include one example from the right, because like we both said, this happens everywhere. I think maybe it's easier to pick on the left because, I mean, I can't speak for you, Kat, but one of the reasons why what's happening on the left distresses me more is because for so long, I identified with that group. And so it just feels strange to see this happening. So I don't obsess about the right as much because I've never really identified with it, but it does happen all the time there. There was a Pew Research poll that said that 71% of white, very religious voters, like evangelical voters, 71% of them voted for Trump in 2020. And he's just consistently had overwhelming support from that group. And then recently, like a couple days ago, there was an interview where we're like someone from the Moms for Liberty group. I can't remember her name. She was interviewing Trump and she asked him about faith. And she was like, what keeps you going? Talk about your faith. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was directly asking him about his Christian faith and how his Christian faith affected how he was able to weather the storm of criticism and adversity. And his response to that was to talk about his poll numbers and how he's beloved by so many. He didn't mention God or religion or anything in it at all because he's not a religious person. He is the golden calf that he worships. And I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, considering how much he seems to like gold-plated things if there was a golden calf somewhere in one of his apartments. I have the most beautiful calf. but. In a sane world, you would not have people who self-identify as very religious. You would not have them supporting a man like this, but because they see him as their champion and as the moral avatar that they wave at rallies on their behalf, they are pot committed to him. And I'm empathetic to them in the same way that I'm empathetic to young people who are making outrageous statements of support for a group like Hamas, not for Palestine, but Hamas, because they've created this moral play in their minds in the same way these evangelicals have, where it's just constantly us versus them. And if I show a moment of weakness by admitting that this person that I've been supporting may not actually be everything I've thought they were, that they'll lose somehow. They don't want to show blood in a water full of sharks, so they just have to keep going. Yeah, fandom dynamics does not allow for any acknowledgement of moral complexity of nuance, or especially that the person you're rooting for might be anything other than perfectly heroic. And it really does remind me of what it's like to be at like a football game when things start to get rowdy. And there's this sense of like, not just that your team are the heroes, but that they're the victims of persecution, right? Like you're watching football game and your team is struggling and the ref calls against them and it's kill the ref. He's in the bag for the other guys. They clearly paid him off, right? You know, even the idea of a, of a neutral third party or a neutral factual objective truth becomes unbearable in those situations. And I think that's very interesting and also very discouraging when it comes to the way that this impacts the national discourse. I was going to say it also leads to really grotesque places. And this is something that I'm about to be writing about in my next column for Unheard. So I got to be careful not to completely scoop myself here. But I've noticed that when it comes to 
things that not that long ago we considered left-wing causes, things like being against sexual assault. There's been this really depraved reversal of that when it comes to acknowledging that members of Hamas who invaded Israel on October 7th might have committed acts of sexual violence. If you mention this on the mainstream internet, you will receive a flood of replies from people who have this incredible storytelling happening where it's, first of all, they don't believe it happened. Everybody who says it happened is in the bag for the other team. They're an IDF spokesman. You know, they're a soldier themselves. But also, if it happened, it was justified. And how bad was it really when Israel has done so many terrible things to the Palestinians? And so why do you even care about this? And you just see people tying themselves into knots to maintain this image of the side they've chosen as utterly pure, utterly heroic, utterly without fault. And I think that puts us all in a really unhealthy place. Yes. And this has been going on for so long. You know, the meme, but her emails. (laughs) Yes. That's in regards to Hillary Clinton, right? Like it's this prisoner's dilemma. We've created this environment in society where if you admit any fault of your side or your avatar, that means that the other side wins. And it means that you're an enemy, like you're a double agent for the other side. You must be secretly the other thing, because otherwise, why would you ever criticize your own side? Right. You get attacked both from within and without. You get attacked from your quote unquote side, but you also get attacked from the other side because you're like, ah, a moment of weakness. They admitted that their guy or their gal did something bad. And we haven't admitted that our guy has done anything bad. So you lose, right? I'm ranting now, Kat, but (laughs) I think that's honestly why it's really important to tie yourself to ideas, not to people. Like if you tie yourself to ideas and to values, those ideas, those values can hold consistent. They can act as buoys in a storm, regardless of what happens. If you tie yourself to an individual, to a flawed human being, they're always going to disappoint. But if you tie yourself to a value, let's say freedom of speech, and you believe that everyone should have the freedom to express themselves without having to worry about cancellation every time they say something that someone else might disagree with, if you hold yourself to that principle, you'll be fine. But if you hold yourself to a flawed individual and you act as if that person is a principle, you're always going to get yourself in trouble. You know, it's interesting because on the one hand, I, I want to agree with what you're saying. It's like you've painted a nice picture of what it means to tie yourself to ideas and to values and to have principles first and foremost. But it rarely plays out this way. <laughs> have you noticed this? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If you adhere to principles, you should be fine. But instead, you'll be made an enemy of everyone by, you know, both the people on your side and also the people on the other. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm not saying it it makes you impervious to attacks. I'm just saying for a person's own peace of mind, for their own. Yes, that I agree with. Yeah. For their own moral consistency, for their own ability to sleep at night without ever having to backtrack. If you tie yourself to a principle rather than a person, you will never get yourself in a position where all of a sudden you have to decide, well, you know, this person was advocating for women's rights every day on Twitter, but then I just heard that they sexually abused their girlfriends. So what do I do? Well, if you just hold yourself to the principle that feminism is like an all out good in terms of equality of the sexes, and I believe that sexual assault is wrong and consent is important. Like if you tie yourself to those ideas and those principles, 
Well, then if someone comes along and it turns out they were a hypocrite and they did a bad thing, you can just disown them because you're like, well, they're going against my principles. So goodbye. But it seems to your fandom point, we're tying ourselves more and more to human beings as if those human beings are principles in and of themselves. And we get ourselves into a mess. Yeah. Human beings or human beings is representative of a team, which I think is the other thing. You know, we have at this point an entire collection of people and issues that are seen as a sort of a package deal that either they adhere to right-wing politics or to left-wing politics. It's like you live in a different ecosystem depending on who you vote for, except that who you vote for really makes very little difference in practice. Like none of this stuff really has much of anything to do with policy or any of that. It's interesting. It's not especially coherent. There's no real one ideology or value or anything that links these ideas together that have become, I'm just going to speak about the left because it's still nominally where I land policy-wise. But you know, there are all of these things that are now associated with being on the radical left. And it's things like extreme libertarianism when it comes to the right of children to undergo irreversible medical procedures to transition their gender, but also extreme authoritarianism when it comes to forcing people to take COVID vaccines that they don't want or to mask their faces whether or not they prefer to. These are just the two that I find most interesting to juxtapose against each other right now. But there's an entire collection of these things that are basically like a package deal. And all that they have in common are that people on the left or on the extremely far left have decided that these are their signifiers. This is how you know somebody's on your side, on your team. And so they end up clinging to that, even when it's incredibly self-contradictory, because it's just what the team demands. Yes. I mean, and it leads to these really bizarre scenarios where, again, you can have a person with one consistent principle. Let's take your example. That one consistent principle could say, I believe that an individual should have complete autonomy over their own body and they can do to their own body whatever they please, right? And that can be a consistent principle that they apply throughout their lives. But depending on what issue comes along and if that person remains consistent to their principle, they will get labeled either left wing or right wing, depending on what the issue of the day is, regardless of the fact that they're staying consistent to their own principle throughout. Yes. That's insane. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Harper's letter thing, right? You can consistently, like you have said, hey, I think it's a bad idea for society if someone gets canceled because they didn't post a Black Lives Matter black square on their Instagram. And I also think it's bad if they get canceled because they were at a pro-Palestinian rally. But so many people, the consistency of the ideology is less important to them than when that ideology is deployed. It's more important that you're against canceling someone if they hold a certain set of views that you agree with. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that maybe is an animating force behind all of this is that we're in a moment where there's really a lack of social trust. It's, It's been eroding since before the pandemic, but the pandemic catalyzed a lot of things that were already kind of breeding, that were already kind of toxic and really brought them to the forefront and even normalized them when it comes to how we interact with each other and how we see each other. And I do think that a lot of the clinging to ideological team sports when it comes to politics or one's perceived political tribe is because that is a shorthand for here's a circle of people I can trust. People are very anxious about 
the people around them. And it doesn't help that there's this sort of eternal narrative flowing through everything that actually, you know, the people around you, especially if you're a member of a quote unquote marginalized group, that they all secretly hate you and want to do you harm. They don't want you to live happily and maybe they even want you dead. And that really just tears at the fabric that binds a society together. It makes people view each other with incredible suspicion. It makes people prone to try to get the other guy before he gets you. And I think an enormous amount of what we've been discussing and what seems so not good, to use a really eloquent term, <laughs> I think it, a lot of it flows from there. Yes, I agree. It's happening everywhere. And it's also a very online phenomenon. So a decade ago now, I ran with this, I guess to paraphrase, I ran with a critical race theory, critical social justice group for several years. And I believed a lot of it for a while, but eventually the inconsistencies and the toxic underbelly of it really caused me to back away from it and caused a lot of mental health issues for myself, which I've talked about in earlier episodes of the podcast. But one of the things that I noted is, you know, sometimes being the only white person in the group. And they sometimes, depending on the day, they wouldn't even think of me as white because I'm half Armenian. So do with that what you will. But I would be in these situations where they would be talking about white people in like these abstract ways in ways that I just didn't recognize at all. They'd be talking about them like these mythical creatures who were like doing and saying and acting in ways that just were not representative of my memories of growing up, of my family, of my friend group, my pastor, my church. I just I haven't met people like the ones you're describing, but you talk about these people all the time and it's just disconnected right from reality. But I also see this and this is, I think, equally, if not more scary to me. I see this a lot on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it, where there's like this growing or maybe just more visible alt-right presence, for better or worse. I mean, say what you want about censorship on Twitter before Elon took over, but I don't know, I'm beginning to think that maybe they were onto something. I'm seeing a lot more of this now where there will be these alt-right people who are talking like they've never met a person of color before in their life. Like they're talking about them in the same us versus them, winner take all. Like it's a battle of societies. And if we don't do this for our tribe, then they're going to win in the same way that, again, my once friends 10 years ago would talk about white people in this us versus them dichotomy where I'm like, guys, have you walked around Los Angeles? Like we were literally just in a microbrewery that was like completely multiracial and everyone was having a great time. What are you on about? And I feel like more and more people are creating these narratives in their head. And this is not, of course, to set aside actual issues of racism or discrimination or like the many issues that we have in a multicultural society like our own. But like I'm seeing these descriptions of the quote unquote other side, whether it's racial, ethnic, political, religious, et cetera, that are just like not comporting with reality at all. And yet these tweets or these essays are just getting thousands and tens of thousands of likes. And I'm like, what? When these people go from typing on their phone to like their local coffee shop, do they not experience epic amounts of cognitive dissonance when they realize that the reality that they're describing on their phone on Twitter and the reality that they're experiencing in the cafe down the street are just not aligned at all. I have a hard time grasping it because it doesn't make any sense to me. Am I making sense at all, Kat? I mean, I think it's very cute that you imagine these people go to the cafe down the street. <laughs> I think a lot of it is that, you know, in-person interaction has declined. Casual interactions with strangers have declined. People are now at home 
and online where they can kind of reinforce their bizarro world perceptions of how people actually are to their heart's content. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned, I'm curious to know how your friends responded when you pointed out that their kind of blatant racial stereotyping did not comport with reality. Was that something they were open to hearing? So I got several types of responses, all of which you could probably predict. So one of them was like a no true Scotsman style response where if I would ever use myself as an example, oftentimes I would get the response that because I'm half Armenian, I understand oppression, which again, just doesn't comport with reality. One, because I'm very light skinned. My mom is light skinned. We've been here for over a hundred years. My family came over in 1920. So I don't have any connection to that country. I don't speak the language. You and I, Kat, are probably equally Armenian culturally. I I might just have a slightly higher predilection for hummus. I I can't (laughs) speak for you. So culturally, I'm just not connected to that at all. But they would constantly invoke it as if it was somehow, not to make this a therapy session, I grew to really resent that they couldn't just take me as me. They had to keep calling to an ethnic identity that I myself did not identify with. It's not that I'm ashamed of my history or my cultural heritage. It's just so far removed from me that when I self-identify, I identify like as American. I grew up in a suburb in California. That's how I identify. But they kept calling on it. And I just realized that's more important to them, this little ethnic Pokemon thing they're doing, than who I actually am. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it actually it speaks to that thing that we've talked about a couple of times in various circular ways. But fixating on race is a way to code somebody as a member of the oppressed category, hence good, hence okay to associate with. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. They never once, and I'm not even being hyperbolic, ever referenced my other half, never referenced my Irish half. And again, that's when I first started learning that back then there is a whole ideology out there. I'm not going to do this one-to-one because it's not one-to-one because there is historical differences here, but it is the same undergirding ideology that will prompt someone on the right, let's say, who will make a statement that it doesn't matter how long you've been here. It doesn't matter if culturally you and I are the same because you look different than me. You will never be one of us. The idea of like Asian Americans as eternal foreigners, right? That's a very real phenomenon that's rooted in a history. But that same thing that undergirds that racist belief is the same sort of thing that when someone is talking to me, they don't see me as who I am and who I identify as. They see me as, well, because you are ethnic XYZ, you are okay. It's the same circus distorted mirror, just flipped another way. How long did it take for them to start suggesting that because of your Irish half, you actually were privileged and incapable thus of perceiving reality as it was? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Okay. Just to do a, a kind of a hard turn here, but it is related. Initially, I wanted to ask the question, what are your politics? But I actually find that question pretty shallow, even though it's so prevalent in our discourse that it almost instantly popped into my mind as I was thinking about questions to ask you, because I think we're all in our own ways, as we've discussed in this episode, addicted to categorization. It's comforting to put people in little boxes. I wouldn't be able to answer that question anyway. I eschew labels now. I think the better question to ask is, because I think this is what informs our politics. On the topic of like how people on the far right or far left, how they process the world through this, I think, very toxic lens. 
how do you process the world, right? Like through what lens or lenses do you see social events? What is the driving force that draws you to hold the opinions you hold, write about the topics you write about? Why are you who you are? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Speaking of not wanting to turn this into a therapy session. (laughs) Okay. Well, so I've always been creative. I've always been a free speech liberal, a free speech enthusiast. I've never been much of a joiner, as you might have guessed from the fact that somebody once wrote on the wall of the locker room that I was having sex with my dog. That doesn't happen to popular people. That doesn't happen to people with a lot of friends. But the way that I interpret what's happening in the world, a couple of things. One, in a way that's kind of off-brand for somebody otherwise on or of the left, I'm extremely patriotic. I think that America is the greatest country. And one of the reasons for that is that we are the most successful experiment in incorporating an enormous diversity of people of all, not just, you know, racial, ethnic backgrounds, people who just have different worldviews, people who have different ways of life, and just throwing them all together and saying, get along, leave each other alone, be good neighbors to each other. And people do it. By and large, they do it. And I love that about this country. I think we do this better than anybody else on the entire planet. And that's a thing that gives me optimism when I look around and see people being tribal online. I can always walk outside, go down the street, hang out at a brewery or a restaurant or a bar or go bowling or whatever and just see my neighbors all spending time together, taking joy in each other's existences, getting along and leaving each other alone when it comes to their differing ideologies or their different racial backgrounds or or joyfully sharing in their differences. This is another thing that's driven me crazy, not just as a human being, but also as a writer and especially as a writer of fiction. There's been this idea that's really been ascendant within the past several years, maybe the past decade or so, that other people's interior lives are completely unknowable to us, that we can never imagine what it's like to be like somebody who doesn't share our whatever superficial identity characteristics. And I think this is so completely untrue and such a just intellectually and emotionally bankrupt way of thinking about the world and thinking about other human beings. I love that fiction allows us and kind of embodies how easy it actually is to connect with other people just because they're human and you're human. And so I'm always kind of looking for that sense of we all do interpret the world actually in similar ways. You know, feelings hit us the same way, you know, whether it's rage or envy or love or grief. We all experience these things. These are not unique to people of only given identity categories. And these things allow us to connect with each other and to understand each other. And that question of who are we to each other and how do we treat each other is really central to pretty much all of the writing that I do. It's central to the questions that I ask when I write culture essays. I'm always looking for connections between things. I'm always looking to understand why things are the way they are. I'm much more interested in sort of describing the world in a way that is true than in trying to prescribe solutions to what's happening. As you may have noticed, I'm very short on solutions. But also, you know, writing novels accomplishes that same, it scratches that same itch for me, just like from a slightly different direction, you know, to create a world and put some people in it and see what do they do to each other? How do they treat each other? 
on a special episode of the unspeakable podcast with Megan Dom, you said, quote, I didn't plan on becoming a writer. I sort of fell backwards into it. And then later you said, quote, I started teaching yoga a few years ago because I sort of looked around at the landscape of journalism and thought to myself, I really need to pick something else that will be an income stream that's completely apart from writing, end quote. And I think similar to your writing career, you never thought about starting a podcast, but now you have one. You've had one for years now with Phoebe Maltz Bovey, all because of the conversations the two of you would have on Twitter and people asked if you could formalize them with a show. And it feels to me like your career is at least partially defined by your openness to serendipity and spontaneity and the fact that you haven't locked in your identity the way that most people do. I think one of the things that we can all get stuck in, I get stuck in this idea, is this idea of this is who I am. And then we cling to that definition of ourselves for stability because if we don't know who we are, you know, what are we? And I think being able to continuously change that definition to be okay in the flux, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a novelist, I'm a podcaster, I'm a yoga instructor, come what may. I think that's a kind of superpower in my opinion, if I'm going to flatter you a bit, Kat. I appreciate that. Some people would say that I'm just incredibly flighty, but I like your take on it. I'm trying to draw a strand between what draws you to write about what you write and then what draws you to the kind of serendipity and spontaneity that kind of seems to inform how you live your life, right? This idea of wanting to understand how other people think, why other people do what they do, the things that connect us and your own path of life of making connections or doing a completely disparate thing from what you were doing before. I don't know if there's something larger there, but I, I found that potential connection interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I guess it is interesting. Let me think about this for a minute. I think that maybe the through line in all of this is that I am curious about other people and about the world. I'm less interested in sort of making normative judgments about how people are. I'm just interested in how people are. One of the things that I really like about journalism is that I can find somebody who I need to speak to for a story who thinks about things in a completely different way than I do, often in ways that I find incorrect or disagreeable. And I can ask them probing questions about why do you think this? Like, how did you come to this conclusion? What's the shape of your brain in there? And the answers are always really interesting. Even when I've had the odd, more antagonistic interview with somebody who didn't really want to talk to me, but felt compelled to for whatever reason, it was illuminating. It was always fascinating to gain these insights into how other people think and how they approach the world and how they approach their responsibilities, whether it's to other people or to their principles or to a job that they've been asked to do. So one of the things that, just to bring this into a completely different space, but as a yoga instructor, that job is one of the ones that I think it meets the definition of what was originally described as emotional labor, where you're dealing with other people's feelings. You know, I'm obviously I'm dealing with other people's bodies as well, but it's mostly what kind of energy are we sustaining in the room? And, you know, being able to understand what people have brought into the studio on any given night. If people are dragging, people have had a rough day, maybe it's raining outside and everyone's in a bad mood and everyone's cold and wet. Just kind of being able to take whatever that is, whatever people have brought in, and then collectively decide, you know, we're going to sh we're going to shape it into something mindful and something 
restful for the next hour. I think in some ways that's flexing the same muscle, but I just realized what I said sounded so incredibly pretentious. (laughs) I don't know. For my money, I don't think it's possible to speak about oneself in a vulnerable way without risking sounding pretentious, because I think to actually delve into what makes us, you kind of have to talk about yourself in a way that feels a little self-serving, even if it's not. So I give you a pass. Okay, thanks. <laughs> it could also just be that I'm incredibly flighty and can't commit to things. Could be. I feel like just based on my own experience talking with her, I've had her on the show twice now. I feel like you and Monica Guzman would have a really great conversation. Oh, I'm such a fan of her work. Yeah, I would love to speak to her sometime. Yeah, because she's similarly driven. I mean, if you're familiar with her work, you know this, but she's similarly driven by just a really robust curiosity and a desire to understand people as they want to be understood. And I think that that is, speaking of superpowers, I think that that is probably one. Because I think that it's so easy to view someone else through the lens that we would prefer them to exist within, rather than to understand someone on their own terms and take them as they are, rather than who we wish they were for whatever reason. That's one of the things that I I really appreciate about your writing, Kat, and why I've been a fan of yours for as long as I have. Because I think that... And it's heartening to see someone with your perspective being published in the Washington Post, both for what it says about the Washington Post and for what it says about the power of your ideas. Because I think that staying true to one's principles and also especially if those principles are driven by a desire to see other people, even people you strongly disagree with, even people whose views you find abhorrent, seeking to understand them as they understand themselves is, I think, one of the only ways we're going to get out of this mess that we're in. And we've been talking about the mess for a while. But We've talked about the problems around free speech, about the problems of teams, the problems of moral avatars and not wanting to see the best in other people. And there's a part of me that feels very pessimistic because I think a lot of it is driven by something that we can not put back in the bottle, which is social media. I think it brings out the worst in us. I think it's like tribalism on steroids. And I I don't know how we get out of that without doing China style bans on social media, which are a non-starter in America. So what can we do? Is there anything that we can do to turn the ship around, as it were, and to foster a healthier environment for people to not only speak what they believe without fear of being canceled for the rest of their lives? How do we take the temperature down and create a a healthier society where we can all coexist more peacefully? So I think the good news is that the temperature is starting to come down on its own. There are little signs here and there that make me optimistic. Somebody like me being published in the Washington Post, I think is a good example of maybe things are cooling down a little bit. I would not have been invited to write that column three years ago. Of course, they may never invite me back. But nevertheless, it seems like maybe we're starting to move in a slightly less hot-headed direction. And that may be for no other reason than that people are just getting really tired of all of this nonsense. One of the things about the culture as it is right now is that it's wildly unreflective of how the average person in this country feels or how the average person in this country lives. There is a very tiny contingent of people who do unfortunately have a disproportionate amount of control over the national discourse, you know, over all of our institutions and over our cultural institutions. Like I said, publishing, Hollywood, academia and the media 
who would prefer to keep the norms as they are as long as they also are still hanging on to power. But the thing about power is that it does not coalesce permanently in one place. And I do think that as horrifying and tragic as what happened in Israel on October 7th was, I do think it shook things up in a way that opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that we had gotten to a place where we couldn't stay. You know, we had established a bunch of norms that were not sustainable and people started looking for an off ramp. Now there are going to be people who don't want to allow for one because they're in a very cozy position of power and influence and they still want to be able to decide who's in and who's out and who's canceled and who's not. But I think their influence may be on the wane. And I see things like the dismantlement or dialing back of some of these really just facially insane diversity initiatives that have been so prevalent within the past three years. People have ever had a sort of an extreme case of do somethingism. And then people are looking at what they built or what they installed and saying, actually, no, this is nuts. We don't need this. We don't want this. We especially don't want to pay a billion dollars for it in perpetuity. So there's things that make me optimistic. And I think that the other thing that will fuel that trend continuing is if people just touch grass. (laughs) I know that's like a very cliche thing to say. But to get offline and to rediscover what it's like to be in a community, a real in-person community with other human beings, I think is so valuable and so restorative. And it doesn't even have to be something as significant as like attending church. It's just having a nice conversation with the person who rings up your groceries. You know, like it's five minutes. You're both there. I think that rediscovering these kind of pleasant interactions with strangers, which, you know, sometimes they're nothing, but sometimes they do kind of spark like a moment of recognition, or it turns out you have something in common or whatever it is. I think that those obviously went on decline during the pandemic, but we can still rediscover the value of those things. And I hope we will. Well, if I haven't already made it clear I am such a fan of your thoughtful, nuanced, empathetic writing. I recommend everyone check out your regular columns on Unheard and your Feminine Chaos podcast. Oh, and I almost forgot because we didn't even get to touch on it. The psychological thrillers that you write. The most recent book is You Must Remember This. The one before that was No One Will Miss Her. You've also written two young adult novels and co-wrote a novel with Stan Lee, A Trick of Light. I have been busy. You have been busy. You are doing so much. And that is why, in addition to just being a fan of your work, knowing how much you do, I am just grateful to have you on the show. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for making the time. And thank you again for all you're doing out there. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was really fun to chat. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts.